Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Sclerus White is a duo consisting of esteemed Cretan folk musician Yorgos Sclerus and the prolific in-demand drummer Jim White, who originally hails from Australia and is a member of Dirty Three. Over the past five years, George and Jim have been recording their wholly original music in New York with Guy Picciotto, a musician and producer who is a member of the band Fugazi from Washington, D.C. After 2014's Goats and 2016's Black Peak, Bella Union released the third Sclerus White record on January 19th, 2018. The album is called Mother, and it's another stunning and heartbreaking and inspiring record from this one-in-a-million union. Guy and I had an extensive conversation about Mother while he was in Brooklyn, and then, a little while later, as Jim was in Australia and George was in Crete, we too connected for a talk about this collaborative friendship, the filmmaker Jem Cohen, the reclusive musician Mary Margaret O'Hara, every song on Mother, and much more. With in-kind support from Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee, in Guelph, Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, and Planet of Sound locations in Ottawa and Toronto, and of course, flexible monthly pledges by listeners like you at patreon.com slash Control. this is the 400th episode of Creative Control, featuring Guy Picciotto and Sclerus White, with your host, me, Vishkana. Jim, can you talk yeah. about how your collaboration uh, with between you and George and Guy actually began? Why, why did you two start working with Guy, per se? Oh, well, p- f- from a personal point of view, I mean, I had met Guy somewhere along the way before through Touch and Go people. I met Jim when he was in Dirty Three, I think actually at the Touch and Go offices. Like, Fugazi had been on tour, and we were sleeping on the floor at Corey's office, and... 
the Dirty Three guys, I think, had just recently signed to Touch and Go. So they came through the office to say hi, and we were all, you know, I think just getting out of our sleeping bags or whatever, and they, we just hung out with them. That was the first time I think I had ever seen Jim uh, prior to even ever seeing Dirty Three play. So I met him around then, and then over the years, certainly saw them play a bunch of shows. And at one point, Vic Chesnut, when I was on tour with him, we played a show with Dirty Three over in Europe and, and kind of renewed communication at that point, and then... The friendship really established itself when I moved to Brooklyn um, from D.C., which I did in 2010. I met Guy, uh, you know, I know Jem Cohen for a long time, just from Jem coming to shows and um, actually having a lot of mutual music likes, especially Mary Margaret O'Hara. But then on September 11th, 2011, that, that Jem was arranging sort of a renegade uh, film and music performance in an abandoned drive-in and he asked Guy and I to do something. It was actually, there was this <laughs> there was this event where these people had basically broken into a drive-in movie theater that was in this uh, Hasidic community up in upstate New York and they'd go in around like midnight and then just project films on this giant screen and people would just show up and it was totally, you know, underground or whatever and then, you know, bands would set up with a generator and then play music to the films that were playing on this giant drive-in screen and that was the first time Jim and I actually played together we just did some improvisations uh, guitar and drums to these films and then after that we were together scoring some movies for Jim a movie called We Have an Anchor and we ended up just doing a bunch of projects together over over the years doing sessions and um, just getting to know each other that way when George and I actually the very first show we ever played uh, was in not so far from Guy's house and Guy came down and when he started playing with George and I went and saw them play one of their first shows in New York City and then the next day I said well, you know why don't you just come to my house and we'll try tracking some stuff he's got a studio in his basement and you know we were looking at recording a, a single for something there was like a, a a reason for like we'd been recording in the studio in Queens then we went and did that with Guy and then you know it just developed from there the very first day they came over and tracked stuff we got all this incredible material and it just was such a fruitful experience i think and some of those songs ended up on the first record and we just from that point on anytime that they were in new york together at the same time we just would do sessions here at the house and and we've collected i mean literally i think i would say over a hundred 200 pieces of music over the period, time period that i've known them and and worked with them they just come and record enormous amounts of stuff here in other studios elsewhere. And we just kind of collect these giant grab bags of material. And then, and then the process of making the records is to work through the material and start assembling it. And, and George, were you very familiar with Guy's work uh, before uh, you were introduced to him by Jim? Not really. I didn't know Guy before... And I met him then when Jim said before we played, we had the, the that was our first show with Xilouris White in a small venue bar in Brooklyn. And, and, and Guy came there and I met him there. And as Jim said, we, we record some stuff at his basement and that the first day I met him, there at his studio, home studio there at, at his basement, you know, I, I find out that, you know, he had uh, that very special, nice way to contact and, and make comments and, and, 
and talk about the stuff we were recording at that time. And soon later, after I threw the music and his uh, words, you know, I find out how, you know, he, he now he become the, the the main character of the Xilouis white sound, really. Guy is there all the time. and Jim, uh, uh, George says that Guy is now uh, the main character in some ways in the Sclerus White sound. Can you expand upon that? What does, what does Guy bring to your collaboration that uh, seems special to you? Like he brings so, so many things. Uh, like I like the way, like his, his recording style I like a lot. You know, his idea, we, like we, we, he and I pretty mesh a lot on decisions about sound and things like that. And he's also, he's just, and he's super positive and he's like, but he's got a great ear. He's got a great ear for like, for arrangements, for groove, for grooves and uh, for parts, you know, he can zone in quickly in a great way, like an, a, a way that's very easy to work with, like uh, clear thinking and, you know, but it's not, it's not, you know, there's no, it's not an ego thing or anything, you know, it's just like, and he's just be. I don't know, I talk to him all the time about many decisions extra to do with Lurus White. We talk, we talk about a lot of things, uh, you know, musical and non-musical, you know. So it's just, you know, I feel like when we were, it's a three-way collaboration, you know, really. Every time, you know, I'm not, I don't produce a lot of records and I don't consider myself like a super well-trained engineer or whatever but what i really you know this working with them i feel like just a lot of trust from them and comfort like not everything that we track is recorded in my my own studio but but i would say the bulk of it is and then on occasion we'll go to other studios if we need to do things that are louder or require things that i don't have here at my space but in my studio i don't have a control room so i'm just sitting I, there's no separation between me and them. So they're basically, we're all just sitting in the triangle while, while I'm tracking. So there's the communication between the three of us is just very open. It's, um, it's not me clicking on a talkback mic to discuss a sound issue or an arrangement issue. It's just the three of us talking together and, um, and they're just very, very receptive to, to feedback and ideas about moving things around or extending things or changing shapes and, all that kind of stuff. So I think we've just kind of created a, a partnership or a friendship that's made it very easy for the three of us to to work together in a way that is, I don't know, it's it's very, it's been unique in my experience to be, it feels very similar to having an instrument in my hand, but I don't actually. I'm just, you know, I'm just like, um, but there's a, a feeling of that kind of kind of sharing or whatever. It's, 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 it's awesome for me. It's really awesome. He mentioned a day that you guys got together and you were just, the two of you in particular, you and George, Jim, were in this zone where you were improvising and, and you were playing and he recorded all of it and he couldn't believe it. And that he was saying that even, uh, you know, we're on your third record now, a lot of the the material that came about on that one day is still stuff you're working on and still stuff you're drawing from. Is that is that your recollection, Jim? Yeah, there was. Remember, there was a, a sort of a, a certain tuning that we that George had, and a certain, you know, where the microphones were, you know, hit, hit the spot, and we were in the we were in the good zone of like uh, improvising, I guess. You know, really, really being really, qu- we're pretty quick in the studio anyway, like mo- moving through ideas. And yeah, that's something we've drawn on at different times through the records. Yeah, 
for sure. The thing is, we've recorded. There was some request for some song early on that we we had while we went there that first day after the show. And then you know we only had I think a few days before George had to go back. We did a, we did a, I'm not sure how many days we did, and then we were, I, I can't really remember the order of how it all went. But we've we've recorded in Guy's house many many days, you know, and there's many songs stockpiled or whatever you want to call it, you know. That's the thing about Guy is Guy's also meticulous at um he's you know a good record keeper and he knows what's there, you know what I mean? And he'll go back and and find stuff. But uh, so yeah, the, so there is a, there was a we actually made an album playlist that we never put out of some stuff from that period, that early period. Yeah. Um, and instead we've just drawn some different songs at different times, yeah. And we've gone back and maybe we've augmented them or, you know, sometimes just put them on as they are. Everything about the way the group works is a, is a complicated combination of elements, I think. They're working often from a pure improvisation, or not often, I would say one mode of working is based on pure improvisation, and there's songs on this record that, that came out of that. There's other ones that are based on traditional Cretan melodies and rhythms, and then they're kind of put through a, a different, the filter of the band itself and the way they work on those things. And then there's some things which are a combination of, of both elements, and... And then there's also like, you know, just completely new compositions that are arranged as what you would think of as a, arranging a traditional song if you were writing one from the ground up. So there's like all these different modes of working and most of the songs have elements of all of that. So what we do is we sort of find like some a direction for a new album, you know, like um, we sort of try and find out what it is. I feel like with Zora White, it's like as soon as we started playing, it was like this expanse like because you see so many ways so many ways of doing things you know so many i don't know you could call them albums if you wanted to or ideas and you know then you have to we have to start somewhere so you know mark some ground and then and then we find the nature of the you know we do some sessions and we we tend to record a lot we've got a geese whenever we can sometimes we go in the studios in different places uh when we're traveling and uh you know, the three of us, we discuss the, and find the nature of the album, you know, what we want it to be and what it is. And then we'll, like, throw other songs, you know, we'll talk about other songs that, you know, that which are either recorded or not recorded, you know. They could be contenders for that. Okay, well, I think uh, that's, a, that's, that's a good enough context for me in terms of, of why you work with Guy. And it makes sense since he's got, since he's hoarding all your material, you have to go back and see him. Uh <laughs> he's got it all there so i, I think <laughs> i think i understand the nature of the collaboration um are you ready to kind of talk about uh, each of the songs in some respects i'm just going to ask a, a few questions about each of them and i'll just add something in about that with gee um i remember now that when we one way that I, he and i got to know each other was we did this thing called we have an anchor i'm not sure if he mentioned that well, yes and i that's where you and i first met jim i, I saw the two toronto shows Ah, uh, with Mary, yeah. Yes, yes. And the first night, I feel like she... Yeah, I remember Mary being different on both nights. I can't remember yeah. which was which, but one, she seemed more comfortable than the other, as I recall. As she is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. One where she, one, yeah. One where she opened up more and improvised more. I feel it was the second night she improvised more. That's right. I think the first yeah. night she was more cautious, and then the second night was magical. It was unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. And we got to talk through that, and that's actually led also to George and... Guy and I, you know, that one was with uh, some some of the Montreal people, Todd from New York and, uh, you know, Ephraim and Jessica and Sophie. 
from the Montreal people, uh, the Godspeed, Silver Mount Zion. And then that actually now George and Guy and I, we do another program with uh, Jem on occasion. Let's uh, let's go through the songs a little bit. I want to begin with In Medias Res. familiar with the, the term in medias rest what it means yes it means to uh begin a story kind of midstream or something like a, the, a narrative midstream is that correct yeah i think it's like they refer to like when they talk about the iliad or like old uh things like that they they sometimes talk about like just jumping into the action or whatever and that was the title that occurred to me when i heard the music and i was like oh my god that's so what that's this is and I, it's one of my favorite things that is on the record it's because it's very very different from a lot of the stuff that they've done it feels like these sheets of sound and and it was constructed in a really strange way like i think the original root of that was george playing a series of cellos as if they were lutes so we knew it as cello lauta which is like cello lute hmm. that was kind of the working title for it well uh, that song it was a sound i had uh, from uh, some years ago which uh, I wanted to to make a, an instrument with four strings, sound like 40 strings. And I was doing that arpeggio, as we say, on my fingers, on the lute strings, and I tried to make it like caterpillar, you know, go up and down and, and feels like I had more than five fingers in one hand thinking about the legs of a creature. So the bass was a recording of George um, back in Crete recording with these cellos. And then at some point he recorded a lira, which is like a bowed instrument. He recorded it on his cell phone while he was listening to the piece. So, And the quality of that for some reason just sounded so beautiful that we just used the recording from his cell phone as the mm. additional element there. When I start uh, record, recording that, it was straight into the go, you know, press rec and go straight there, you know, don't muck around like that. That thing, and that uh, was something was following me a uh, long time until we put it down with Jim and we had a listen, and and we thought that's a really, you know, something we want to work on it, and we did that with Guy in a studio, 
And, you know, after we had uh, listened and again and again, you know, we find, we put down some of Jim's feelings and we try things. And then we took that, that material and did a bunch of different ideas on drums at this studio um, called Trout Studios. We went in with, and we played the, that, that bass material and then had Jim play like train rhythms and open rhythms and all these different, we did like, I think seven passes of drum ideas, like different ones. And there was one that was like really free that just ended up, I don't know, it just really lifted the, the piece and, and that was the end, one we ended up using. But that one was like recorded, you know, in multiple installments in different media and ways, <laughs> like, you know, including a cell phone. And it became, that became something about the rough mix of that just it just was the song it was done you know it just sounded perfect to us so it, i feel like it's definitely one of the most interesting things i think they've ever recorded and one that i had probably the least to do with but just kills me i love that song jim went into the point straight into the point without saying you know details about it just listen to the sound you know it was something really was following me and it was something like uh, following us with Jim, with before Xilouris White. So he put the lira on the top, and lira, it was a, you know, it's, a, it's like a conversation of the, yeah, it's a conversation really, from into the point, you know, drums and, and arpeggio, and lira is like, trying to find the solution between these two. First song is a big part of the record of, of the mother, you know, of the mother of the meaning, because the idea, as an idea, gave us the opportunity to, to play our instruments, which is the mother of the, the first pieces, is the, the sound was there already, and, you know, gave us the opportunity, you know, gave us the, the you know, milk, which is the, the opportunity to play with our instruments, which are our, our, our toys in a way. Okay, we move on to Only Love. which uh, I believe I saw you play in Guelph at the Kazoo Festival. And I feel that way because I remember thinking it stuck out 
from some of your previous material. Uh, from my vantage point, it's a more upbeat song. It has almost a rock song structure. The, the beat is more of a rock beat, I would say. And, and, and I thought the arrangement was, was more in that vein of kind of like a rock song. Uh, Jim, can you talk a little bit about where Only Love came from exactly? I don't think we did play it there, but uh, <laughs> okay. I I feel like I know I've, <laughs> I feel like I've seen it played because I, I I remember being like, oh, that's interesting. Well, I think it's interesting for people outside of the process of working on it. I think people see the records as being like kind of they see an evolutionary narrative where there's like, hey, there's the first record and they establish something, and then the second record and the third. Because of the way we record and the way we so much of the making of the record is in actually the song selection and hmm. the sequencing. Some of the stuff that's on the newest record is stuff that we recorded at the very beginning. And some of it, ah. is, some of it is brand new. And so it's, instead of being like a linear line, it's more like kind of an oscillating spiral of like returning to old ideas and then pushing new ideas forward. And each record is kind of constructed with an intent and an idea. Like the first record was, was mostly instrumental and then had one song with vocals on it, and which kind of led to the next record, which was predominantly vocals. And then we started introducing the element of additional, or they started introducing the element of, of additional instrumentation and voices and stuff. And then the third record has m m continued that, where it's like more instrumentation, more arrangement. But a lot of that was kind of intentional in the way that we we sequenced and constructed the records, but not all of the material in this new record. Predominantly, most of it is new material, but some of the stuff is stuff that we had basic tracks for for a very long time and that needed time for us to figure out ways to use them or ways to add to them with overdubbing and, and, and reconstructing from, from that perspective. A lot of these songs, like say like Only Love, for example, that's mm -hmm. a song that we've recorded, I don't, I don't know, maybe... 15 versions of it with different arrangements and different ideas and it the funny thing about that song is it came, it came out of a session where we said like hey let's record a bunch of ringtones so we recorded these like you know 12 second like when you called me my ringtone is a Zyloris white home recorded ringtone that we created ourselves and they did here at the house and I can you want you want to hear what it sounds like sure all right this is the one sec let me dial it up here but um <laughs> wow <laughs> could you could you hear that i could hear that yes it sounds uh that's a remarkable ringtone if i might it's say really, it's really enjoyable um <laughs> so the that day we were recording all these ringtones and we recorded like i don't know seven or eight of them and like one would be really melancholy the other one would be like this is what it should sound like when your mother calls this one you know we had them very specific kind of they had ideas for you know the kind of the the vibe of each one and then they did this one that sounded i called it the anthill ringtone because it had this crazy like bug-like energy to it and i was like that's that's an incredible part and then i was like let's you know maybe we should try to put that into arrangement and george had been working on this other song which i didn't even realize he, he changed the tempo and changed some things about it and attached this ringtone thing to it and then that was the the kind of the gestation of what became only love and it became something that we worked through like many many cycles of arranging it until it became this kind of compact rock thing that it is now but it but that was the way it, it started so we had multiple versions of that only love <laughs> <laughs> 
That was uh, something we, we did before in Athens with Coty in some point. Oh, that's right. We did it a different way. Yeah. Guy actually mentions that he believes, according to his notes, there are f- may, may have been 15 different versions of this song before the one that exists on this record. So maybe you're right too about the maybe you're right about the Guelph maybe because I, I forgot that we were doing it in a different way, and up in uh, we did it up in Columbus Theatre too, right, George? Yes. Okay, so yeah. it, it just has evolved into. I mean, I think it's probably uh, more of a rock beat song than pretty much I can remember doing ever, you know, in, in the beat. But yeah, just it developed with the arrange, you know, as it, it, that changed from the other versions, you know, it seemed like a nice combination with in the sort of order of the album, you know sort of coming in hard like that after the first one. George, I want to ask you about the I want to ask you about the 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 words of the song. Uh, yeah. I have the English translation in front of me. I only gave love to this false world and my repayment was if you have more give me it. Can you talk about the lyrics in this piece? This piece is a kind of sirto which is a, a dance of Crete. It's a sirto the lyrics are come from uh, here in Heraklion a few years ago, you know, some years ago, and they come from uh, that uh, uh, poet, Yorgos Stavrakaci, who at that point we were together and we were take a part of a recording in a record here, somebody's in uh, Heraklion. And he turned around to me and he said the, the, those lyrics because... We become together waiting to go to the studio and I was telling him how much worried I was and he knew how much work I had put on on that record and but you know and him and but nobody was happy enough with that was we were giving to the sound where we were doing at that point and and he turned around and he said that to me. And I thought, you know, the following days, you know, I, I took that, uh, you know, I, I was uh, inspired because the feeling of, of the time. And I put some, uh, you know, some music in on, on that lyrics. And, but it wasn't completely different to what, uh, it, w- it was same time similar and completely different what we come out with mother after all this time and the and and the lyrics can be like that you know like you want to you know all the people around you you know around you you know to be happy and and work together and make something together but all the time something there gives you the disappointment and and you know, find out after all, all this what you're doing. You know, you have to give more and more and more just to keep it rolling. So that was inspired to me at that time, and then I find out that that is what you have to do. I mean, you need to do that and and try hard and hard. You know, and to be out there and and in contact and be with people but really I'm not uh, complying because I'm going to give more love and more of my feelings and soul you know to this world but 
remind me the same time, you know, that what I need to do for the people and for me. move on to a song called Motorcycle Condelius. This is a longer piece on this record. The last record featured a song called Pretty Condelius. Do you know yes. if there's some relation between the two? Yeah, the Condelius is a it's a it's a traditional melody and form um, that has many different iterations rhythmically and many different ways to approach it. Condelius is uh, like Sirto we said before. There are many Sirto and there are many Codillers. Codillers comes from the, that type of the, the way you play the, the phrases and the dance, of course, which is a slow dance. But Codillers is the way you put, you know, one Codilla, one phrase. And then Codillers is the way you put Codilla to Codilla and make Codillers. And there are Codillers all, 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 you know, across the, the whole village of Crete. What's interesting about this version is that what we had come up with a plan to create this kind of like Bohemian Rhapsody Condilius, which was going to be <laughs> just this massive construction of these rhythms. It was just a massive, massive arrangement, which was going to be like almost like a Britannica of condilious rhythms and melodies. And we recorded, I think, 14 different condilious with very specific, very looped. Like normally Jim doesn't, you know, we don't sit on a looped type rhythm idea. Generally, the ideas are rhythmically are moving around and the drums are exploring. But this time we very specifically had defined rhythm patterns for each of the 14 and different lute patterns for each of the 14. And then we were going to find some way to record it as one massive epic history vision of the Condilius. But we never got past the stage of just articulating what each of the 14 was. And when we tried to connect them all, it became very, very difficult to do as a, as a, as an executed arrangement idea. So, hmm. but this one particular one, it just, the rhythm on it, it, rem- it, it reminded me of this rhythm on that Prince song kiss. For some reason that just, there's, I'm not sure they're even that linked, but for some reason it had this, the groove of it was just, I just couldn't get a, get it out of my head. Huh. And it just, the swing of that drum pattern is it was just a narcotic to me. Like I just was so, I just couldn't get away from it. I know that song. Yeah, of course. I, 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 uh, it's like, can you hear that? Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you play that one? Yeah, I have played that one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have had to play that song in some configuration relatively recently. Yes. And it is, a, it's a hypnotic beat. Yeah, so I mean, I guess I could, yeah, I can understand what. It, so you know, we we were playing this song. We were like playing, you know, the Condilius, as I understand it, the Condilius from uh, Noia has many parts, and we were like sort of, you know, we were going through these parts, and we really, you know, we really focused in on this 
you know, we were looking at it as a whole, like looking to see what it was, and then we really focused in on this part. And and he heard me doing that beat, and he really was like, you know, he he really loved it, and he ref- he mentioned that reference. I don't know to, to the actual. I don't think it's actual same syncopation, but the feeling of it, you know, I think. And you know, I was watching Guy. He was moving around at the desk. You know what I mean? So so I was like, yeah, that's a good, that's got to be a good one, you know. The feeling that George put into that version, which was really just a practice tape, like you know, we set up in the studio, but we I wasn't really engineering it for any kind of posterity or thinking about it necessarily as like a finished track. It was more as a guidepost to this larger idea that we had. Right. But George just hit the vocal so exuberantly and the playing was so exuberant. And then the piece just, they could have played it for 28 minutes or 36 minutes. They could have played it forever and it would have had, I just, it was almost, it just was so, to me, so intoxicating. And it just, it's a very, very long piece, but it never feels long to me when I listen to it because of just the energy and the flow of that piece. So we ended up just singling that one out and, and having it be a song on its own. I remember times back in early 80s, late 70s, here in Heraklion, I was with my cousins and we had motorbikes and I, I, I was on a motorbike, I, I, I was sitting in the back and my cousins, you know, every time we, you know, went with the ride, with the go around with the motorbikes, we were sing those phrases and sing on it and improvise lyrics. So it's it's a really another piece which is following us all our life, you know. And we put it down and try to develop on those phrases. The feeling, I I do want to ask about that feeling, George, because the last two verses intrigue me in English. Stubborn me, stubborn you, you're being stubborn. Girl, you won't give up unless you drive me crazy. All I have is a heart and a motorcycle, and I'll give you both if you promise to go straight. This is, it's a a romantic (laughs) song. It's a frustrated song. Uh, (laughs) It seems to be about the, you know, the kind of frustration about uh, being in love and, and, and how it can be. There's a certain amount of insanity yes. involved, I think. Yes. Simple and se- sensitive and strong. Yeah. Anything more you want to say? I know you were consulting your notes. Anything more you want to say about this song? Let me take a look here to that page. Have you always taken? Do you always take notes when you're making a record? Well, with these with these guys, I have to take meticulous notes because I'm literally looking at five or six different composition books that are filled from front to back with notes from sessions. Because, like I said, I mean, there's literally on a on an average day we'll be tracking and we may track twenty three pieces of wow. music. And if I if I'm not taking notes about what's going on with each one, then there's just not going to be any way for me to go back and and 
find things or reference what we were working on or what the I intent or ideas behind each of the pieces was. And so I really try to keep a lot of notes as it's going on. And also sometimes just to help me think of, you know, a lot of times when they're improvisations, just to have something that gives us an idea of what the, like just scraps of things that they're saying or whatever that might lead to titles for the songs or other things. So it's like just a way to kind of focus in on, on what's happening. Yeah. Cause for example, they might do four, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten versions of a song. But if you don't in the moment, I can be saying like this one had this, this one felt like it was the superior one. Then it make it just kind of finesses the moment when you have to go back through all the material and find out what's worth exploring. Yeah, has this has this impacted how you work with a band that's coming in with say ten songs to record? Well, I always keep notes, but these guys, it's a much different. It's like really, it's yeah. it's much much different. Yeah. to Spud's yeah. Garden uh, and this one begins relatively gently and uh, just beautiful singing George I want to ask Jim I want to ask Jim first about George's singing because we've gone from a place where you guys made a, a record where there was I think one song with a vocal and, and now I can't imagine Scloris White without without George singing well I mean obviously George is you know is such a great singer but when I first went to Crete I don't know, four or whatever years ago. We, and we went to the... And we were mucking around and we were, like, in the studio. And, we, and George didn't sing at all. And we were, like, you know, a lot of the times I was learning some of the... I mean, I know the melodies of the music already... Of the of, of some of the traditional tunes already because the sort of melodic structure from listening to it without thinking about it, you know? And then, you know, it was... I was sort of liked the idea of actually having just a little bit of singing on the first one. And it also meant that it wasn't... Maybe this is stupid, but, you know, we weren't this Greek language band straight away, you know? So it's sort of a natural thing. And also, you know, we probably had more... So it was nice to introduce that on the first one. But George's singing is fantastic, and it's just... It's an amazing instrument, but uh, it's Bud's Garden. It's got the beautiful... When it goes so low at the end, and when it's, like, so resonant, you know? That is a song that I've heard them do from the very first time I've ever saw them play, and it's... Uh, so it's a, that one was very well structured from the get-go, and I think it's based on a traditional thing that George has had with him for a while. And they have a, this version that they've been playing, and I've seen them play it live. I've seen them play it in relation to this very beautiful film that Jem Cohen made. Of a, it's basically a, just a train in motion. Uh, it's like a, it's like a tracking shot following a train in motion, and they would play this song. To that film and the two just wedded together beautifully so i always associate it with that with that film and it's one that we've tracked in different ways and then we actually deconstructed it at one point with a totally different rhythm that it was very very beautiful and one that i i hope that we revisit at another point but this is the classic version of that song that we did and the the expansion on this record was to add those other elements the mandolin and the lira which george added in the studio as an overdub and i think are yeah just wonderful george can you pinpoint is there anything that has inspired you to sing more or explore your voice more in playing with jim oh yes i explore my you know the way i'm singing again with jim a lot you know different stuff coming out 
and uh, different stuff to what I usually do with my voice comes out. Because, uh, you know, Jim and Guy, you know, support uh, and, you know, fo force me to, to do, you know, in, you know, through the way we rehearsal and, and try things. And now, you know, different, different ways opens to do with my voice. And Spud, Spud's Garden, it was uh, one of these opportunities. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You know, it's a simple truth and, you know, real, you know, natural sound. You know, Spud is, is a dog and, you know, really the melody become as we were looking a dog going, you know, a friend dog, you know, a pet which you, you've got long time together and following around the garden. I uh, wonder. I wondered who Spud was. I asked Guy about it, and uh, it's interesting to hear that he is a dog uh, <laughs> because the lyric is a, yeah. is a short yeah. one, and I wondered, if, I wondered whose perspective this was from. The lyric is, I quarreled with my thoughts, and now we live apart. I now have joy no more, and yet no worry either. I'd like to know the years that pass if they die too or go and live somewhere else. Is this the perspective of yeah. Spud the dog? Yes, I'm wondering. <laughs> You're wondering if this is what's going on in Spud's <laughs> Spud's mind as he's digging around a yes. garden. Okay, exactly. It's a serious, somber thing for a dog to be thinking. I think we don't think of dogs as having such thoughts sometimes. In, a, in here in uh, in Canada, where I'm calling you from, you know, we think of dogs as being happy and <laughs> you know thinking yes. of fun things. But this is a this very somber, uh, serious-minded uh, dog, is what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> of course. Spud it is a serious dog. Yeah, he's a serious character. Mm -hmm. 
We move on to Daphne, which I believe might be the first song uh, featuring a person's name that I've heard in the uh, catalog. Once we kind of got together to start sessions of new material for the the new record, this is, I think, the first one that we... I think we started this one in December of, of 2016. And so we were just starting out and we had recorded a few things... Um, but very early in the process, I think by the 16th song, we tracked this version of Daphne. And that was the first time where I was like, okay, now we're, there's something really deep happening in the session. Daphne, it's a, it's a song which is a hymn, hymn, hymnos for mother. Because everybody has a mother, you know, mother earth. At that moment, the... Daphne, it's an old song, it's an original song which we play a long time now, all, you know, many years. And it's a song which is, uh, when I met Jim first in Australia, he was, he was coming to see the band I was playing with back then in, in Melbourne. And that was one of our favorite songs we like to play back then and Daphne it's one of the of, of, of the songs I can call m- mother again <laughs> you know because gives me the the opportunity to discover it again and gives me you know more music and more energy in and more dynamics in a way which feels like you take more milk from and more energy to do stuff into something which is old and can be alive all this time. Just the combination of his vocal and the piece and the, the mystery and the mood of it, I would, it's one of the ones in my notebook where I just have a cascade of, I put stars next to things which I think are interesting and this one just got starred to death like a constellation of stars because I was like this one is just so beautiful Um, and it was the first one where I was like okay I feel like there's new terrain or new feelings Uh, there's something about this that's going to be very important for the record and it's um, the original rough mix that I did when I sent it to them is the one that we ended up using on the record just because everything that was there was there nothing we didn't add anything it just was done it was just done that first day I'm reading the lyrics of Daphne and I I just noticed the last verse here and I just want to ask you about it, uh, uh, George. I've never seen another's thought more stubborn than your own. I argue and banish it, but it wouldn't go away. 
This stubbornness has come up now twice. This reminds me of the motorcycle Condelius, where there's this notion of stubborn me, stubborn you. <laughs> this, <laughs> that's a, that's a oh. frequent, uh, it seems to come up a, a few times here. The dynamic between a, maybe a mother and a child and maybe a, you know, two lovers, this notion of stubbornness. Uh, can you speak to that? Well, the connection is that uh, the way you put it, I did. I, I, I haven't think about that, but I find the similarity there, which is uh, is very interesting. <laughs> you know, exactly that because mom is like that. She will never change, anyhow, and the way you know we we, we feel with music, you know, th- through this. Uh, album, this sound, mother, feels like that. You know, there is something which is around your 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 mind all the time, and you know, in the way as you're doing it, as that bear, bear gives you new things, birth again and again, and you discover again, and they are not way to leave you. You know that music. That's that's our mother. That's the you know mother. The record is the the egg of of the two before the two records. Before, you know goats and black pig and the the others. They're going to, to you know following in the in the future. You know I think is the is the egg which is in. Completes and include, includes the the time we have been working with Jim, and it's a change. It's a big change in this period that happens after all this time we be together and and play around the world. Jim, do you want to make sense? It does. It does make sense in a way. It sort of suggests a kind of reverse chronology, right? You're saying that Mother is the egg for the two albums that preceded it, which is fascinating. Jim, do you want to say anything more about that uh, in, in that concept? I was just thinking about this, and like, you know, from my point of view, I guess that makes sense to me. In that, when we started, I could see this big vista. You know what I mean? But then you have to start somewhere, and you have to plant, you know, plant your foot somewhere, like with goats and then you know Black Peak is like a lot to do with experiences of playing a lot of shows traveling around you know and yet it's about the mountain in Crete and the horizon at the same time and then Mother is kind of like yeah to me it goes back to that original idea feeling that it had so like it's like you know sort of both singular and expansive you know what I mean and it opens a way further as well and it's not just preconceived it's like what's happening now but on the it's also it was intrinsic in there before as well you know or it's come 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 true yes it's a new thing out of all these things you know out of all this time we played together and and, you know out of these two records before mother this is a, 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 a a different uh Way glutes, you know, gives you the gives you the picture what was before and what's going to gives you after. That's the that's the feeling I have. 
And then there's other songs like Achilles Heel from the record, which was, there was one day back in December of 2013 where it just was the most productive improv. They were just on an insane improvisational tear where they just were, I don't, I really don't know what was going on, but they would just look at each other and then just go into these like completely well-formed, amazingly structured, but purely improvised sections. And we've gone back to that one session multiple times to pull material from it because it's just, it, it, the engineering sounded was, the sounds were really cool, but that just their playing was just, there was something going on with the playing that day. I don't know what it was, but Achilles heel, call and response, um, pulling the bricks, the first song on the first record. There's a, a ton of songs that came from this one session that was just, it was just one of those weird moments where every single thing they threw against the wall like stuck and was was usable and beautiful in a way that was like and, and really just the material was coming from not from traditional sources it was just coming from them looking at each other and just going right into these things with no discussion so achilles heel was always one that for every record i'd always be like what about this song because i just loved the way it sounded so much and then but it always seemed like it needed another element and this time george went and created this vocal for it. I mean, I didn't even know if it was possible to sing on the song. And he came back from, he went to Crete and he recorded something on top of it and sent it to us and was like, what do you think of this? And it was just, it just, to me, it was just so beautiful. And it really took the song into, you know, the next stage where it could be, where it was definitely had to be on the record. I don't know. For me, George. So this was an instrumental for a long time, and then George put that put that poetry on top, that lyric, the lyrics. So that 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 I mean to me that totally elevated it completely. But um, I did like it before. I mean, there's just a lot. You know, it wasn't that Guy just really was in on it. I guess uh, I think that's the one. It's in a slightly different tuning. The lute is a really interesting instrument in that the the frets themselves are movable, so you can change the frets. Are you know they're not like on a guitar where you have metal frets and they're just immovable and that's what the guitar is like on the lute you can move the frets around and you can also like you can with a guitar you can play with alternate tunings and george often uses different tunings and there's this one tuning with a lower i think it's a drops down to a d i believe on the top which every time he is it plays something in that tuning just the way that we have our mic set up here and the way we there's some stuff that we do with with acoustic lute matched with these uh, two different guitar amps. Like when we create this sound by you know putting mics out of phase, and there's a certain sound that I can get with the lute in this tuning that is for me the it's for, out of the material that we've worked on. It's there's a sound to the lute that feels like it's extra special or it's extra like delicious for me for some reason. It's in that tuning. And this was one of the first times where I felt that extra deliciousness where he was playing in that tuning on this day where he was, they were just cranking out these sick improvs one after the other that were just so amazing. And like I said, I would always return back to this one every time for the last two records and I would just be like, guys, check this fucking song out. And they, they liked it, but they were always like, ah, oh, maybe it needs this or that. And But there's something about that tuning and the way it sounds it sounds coming out of the speakers that just, maybe it's subjective just for me, but I think it's just very, it does something to me that's very, very powerful. I always liked it too, I think, but yeah. Yeah. 
it's interesting when three people are working on something and one of them is like over the moon right away but the others you know it, it just uh, it, it took something else and, and I, uh, George Jim mentioned that when you added vocals it really uh, made the song work for him uh, a little bit more and the vocal the lyric here is for me the highest peak in the lands of the living is to be down low amongst the people that's a very profound bit of poetry actually can you speak to that uh, George the meaning behind that uh, those lyrics for you I think this song is a, is a story and the lyrics Aristides Heretis Yalaftis he's a he's a poet he's a man from my village here from Anoia you know those lyrics lyrics I I, I love those you know that couplet long time now I di- I didn't know what lyrics on that piece you know when the instruments talking what other lyrics can go on that and wh- which way you can you could sing the lyrics so I th- I thought about that couplet which I I loved for a long time and then I tried to put it on uh, you know the way you sing a story and, and put some sh- song, some singing notes in the ends of the words. And it was a, a difficult thing to do, but after all, you know, I find a way how to do it, and I really liked it, and I sent it back to Jim and Guy, and they loved it too, because the, the singing happened here in Crete and I, I try a few things on it and then we find out you know with the same lyrics I send it back a couple of times and the third time I send it back to Guy and Jim to to have a listen this one you know which I liked a lot you know they they, they loved it too and we keep that and the way I sang I think and, and the lyrics of Aristide fits the story of the music. When George took it away and came up with the idea for having a lyric attached to it, I just was so happy that it was able to come out because it's always been one of the, of the things that we've done together. It's just always been one of my favorites. And the thing I love about their improvisations is that And I think Jim has some very interesting ideas that would be worth asking him about improvisation and the pitfalls of the term and the kind of nebulousness of what people do with it. But there's something very considered about their improvisations that feels extremely musical and not half-assed, you know, in any way. And this is an example of that where they're just making music out of listening to each other in the moment that has elements of like, you know, adventurousness or just exploring things, but also always with some shape, you know, or some story inside it. And uh, that's, to me, this song is like a perfect kind of distillation of that as an idea, as an approach to improvisation.
Okay, we're going to move on. We're almost done this exercise, and I appreciate your uh, willingness to go through these pieces. We're going to move on to Woman from Anoya. Because this is a risitico. So, as I understand it, the style of song is like from people in the mountains, like maybe shepherds or something, singing by themselves, unaccompanied. You know, we always play some of them in the show, and uh, and this is and this is one that we actually haven't done. So we like some of them we've been doing for all the years and uh, recording them many times over, and you know. I think one day we'll get them and we'll have them on, especially this one called Cold Rosidica. But this one is a one we just did quickly in the studio. A lot of my memory of this song has to do with the day that we tracked it. We were we had three days booked in a studio called Trout Studios where we where Only Love was recorded and a few other pieces for this record. And it was one of those situations where we were kind of like working on things and working on things. And then suddenly we realized we had like an hour left in the studio. And it was like this panic to like track like an enormous amount of material in the last hour that we had. Uh-huh. And there's one song called Proto Hanyati, which is if there's a kind of a Moby Dick for the band, it's this song. It's a very old traditional piece that George has been working on for a very, very long time. And has, we've tracked it uh, 50, 60 times, I don't know. In every studio that we go to, in every session that we do, we take a run at this song. And we knew that he wanted to try to throw in a couple of proto-hanyatis before we got out of the studio. But before we did that, they just started banging out these Anoya songs. Um, we did track two of them. One called Beautiful Mum and then one called Woman from Anoya. And they just did them back to back very, very quickly. And then we went in and slammed a bunch of versions of Proto Hanyati, which, you know, chasing chasing this, this song that we didn't get. The lyric I have in front of me is, Cry, poor woman from Anoya. In motherhood, let your tears run to become a river. Walk slowly down to Hades to w- wash your wounds. I, that's, uh, it's, again, a rather dark and somber image george why did you want to bring that to a sclerus white record does it fit with uh, i can see obviously where it fits within the theme if there is a theme of mother obviously this is one of the most direct references to that is there any particular reason why you wanted to to bring this to a song that you and jim would play it's uh it's not only only the the melody and the lyrics i I had the feeling at that time we recorded all all this happening on the world. It was the moment I had the feeling to to put them down, you know, and and try to put our sound into those lyrics, take it from the traditional way to put it in a xilurish white sound. And the meaning of the lyrics, it was because all this happening on the world right now, we're talking. 
take it from Anoya, which Anoya has been during the centuries, has been burned down to the ground, you know, three times from the wars, you know, in the past. You know, every year in my village, you know, they, they celebrate the freedom and the pain of the, you know, people who went through all the wars. You know, the wars happens right now, we're talking, and we're looking, you know, to put our feelings and make it in sound. Our feelings, really, how we feel, you know, how we take it and all think the same time and make it new. And the old happens now and again, and why? And the mother is the one has, you know, goes through this pine a lot. And that's the, you know, the song is about. Totally voice is the center of it. But I sort of think of the drums as like some, I think it's like the weather, you know what I mean? And I, th- so I sort of like, it's supporting the, what's going on with the, the words, the music, the melody rather. And, um, but I, I kind of make some other, other story more, that's maybe more, not atmospheric, but you know, like something else going on, you know, like its own story in the, uh, environment. But then going back to the session and then hearing that woman from Anoya and it just sounded so, I don't know, there was something that had just a, a quality or like, it always blows my mind sometimes how like in the middle of a session, someone, something can happen where there's so much pressure on in this you know, kind of practical way. Like you're in the middle of a, a real world situation where you're trying to get something to happen and you've got limited time and resources and then something just happens anyway that's, you know, artistic and, and interesting and musical and beautiful. And that's, that's what this song is to me. Well, speaking of, I guess, sort of temperamental stuff, I, I want to move on to Call and Response, which is, I think, a, a moodier piece. That was tracked as part of the epic December session that produced all these other improvisations. So that was the, I think it was the penultimate one of that day. I think that speaks for itself, this song, really, you know. We had that one of those sessions, which I had a, a little small small idea, and we said, let's uh, put something down. And it was, you know, later on, Guy gave the, the name of the song, Call and Response, and it was... Exactly like that, because I, I, I had the opportunity to start the, that little idea I had. And Jim was the drums response straight away into it, and then become the opposite direction. And then, like, I was the response to Jim, what he was doing. 
and then we don't know who was response and who was call and that was the exactly the which I like a lot the title of Gis words he said call and response listen to this I like it and we did oh like many of the other ones from the states just like littered with my notations of just massive amounts of stars all around it because it, I loved it so much and again it's just a it may be the kind of or example of a communication between the drum and lute in an improvised mode where they're like you know in a true call and response fashion where the the they're speaking to each other so it's I think it's the most conversational of all the improvisations that we've done and I mean it's got a playfulness to it or whatever a mischievousness or whatever but it also it's also just yeah just wonderful sound and wonderful playing for both of them so So the final song is uh, Lullaby. It is a traditional piece. Uh, Jim, I want to begin, because it features uh, one additional musician here, Anna Roberts uh, Gavalt, uh, and my, from based on what Guy was saying, uh, she is someone you've <coughs> collaborated with before, Jim. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. So she's someone... We met her down... We were, uh, George and I were playing at Big Ears, and we just met her there. She wasn't playing. She was just there, and then came to realize that she was in this band called Anna and Elizabeth, who's a kind of a Appalachian sort of based band that, and they do a lot of um, dancing from there and they sing and uh, they're both great singers and uh, musicians play banjo and, and violin and viola and different things. Um, so we actually, Solaris White and, and Anna and Elizabeth have been talking for, since we met a couple of years ago about doing something together, which hasn't, we haven't like doing some shows together or something. Which we haven't done yet, but um, in the meantime, yeah, they did actually ask me to play on their record, and I played on some songs. And then some of the songs on this record were done at the studio called Trout, near Guy's house and near my house. George and Guy and I wanted to we wanted to go to another studio other than Guy's to do some to do some songs, and so we went in there. And then later on, we wanted some string sort of string sounds on. Uh, just wanted to try something a lullaby and uh, send it to Anna, who was on tour, I think, at the time. And I think she may have done it in a hotel room somewhere. And she put that on, and, and, and we sorted that out. It's a song that they've cut a few different times, and um, it was the last song on the last day of the, of the session. And we had found a version of them doing a lullaby live that was just so beautiful. Um, the vocal and the, mournf- the melancholy of it and... So I was just, you know, always really hoping to get one that would work for the record. And we went back through the sessions and we found this one. And in the project that we were doing where we were syncing music with film, Jem Cohen had made this film which had footage of really, really beautiful footage of his newborn son. And we synced it with this music and performed it live. It was kind of like the symphony of guitar feedback and stuff. And then out of all of that came this lullaby with George singing it. 
and it was it kind of was just gorgeous and then that kind of kind of confirmed that the the song really needed to come out and it it ended up fitting perfectly as a way to to finish this record when we found that version again and just heard the way all the pieces lined together it's like there's something about george's vocal on that that's very just you know i don't know it, it really it's very touching <laughs> George, can you talk about the the meaning within this song, Lullaby? Again, uh, it seems like a very appropriate ending to a record uh, called Mother, but can you talk a little bit about this song? Yeah, Lullaby has the connection with Mother again. Strong connection with the woman from Anoya in a different way. You know, the feeling of the mother crying for her kid and let the tears go to the other world and do, you know, I'm sorry, I can't find the words very easy to say, but here's the feeling in the opposite direction, what I want to say with the lullaby that which, you know, gives the the pleasure of, of music and and put in the mood, you know, the baby to sleep, but at the same time to do that you have you, you you need to have the really a baby there to put it to sleep, and in in that way, you know Anne put a lot of with her playing into the song, and the connection with the I think lullaby it was a. A big, has a big part of the the name of the record, really, as the other songs. fascinating for me because I've spent a lot of time with Mother as a record and it's been playing 
throughout my house, and I, I've just been listening to it. And now to finally get to see the lyric sheet has been... It sort of changed my relationship a bit with the music. Like, Jim, do you do you and George talk about the meanings behind these pieces ever? The lyrical meaning... I, I you know, I don't speak... I don't understand Greek, so I, I, I want to know what they're about. But uh, it's often like kind of uh, later... Later thing after we after the music, you know. I mean, there's a, I think maybe I mentioned this last time to you. Like we had a song and like, hey George, let's do this song again, you know. And we did it again, and and but it sounded totally different, you know. But it was the same song, you know. Are they the same words? And it's not. Oh no, that's. And then he goes, ah, oh, no, no, that's the different words I sang that time. In that way, the song is separate from the lyrics in a way. Like, I don't know. That's one thing I've learned from George is how that how how in Crete they think of it. You know what I mean? And it's an interesting yeah. thing about how the lyrics are often in the, I think for the Sator and the Cordelias, is that right, George? They're always in the, yeah. they're always in the format, right? Mm-hmm. With the couplets, with the syllables. Yes. So you can, you know, so you can take these different lyrics and put them with it, you know. So, so sometimes we get into a discussion about, because like two lyrics might have very different meanings. And, you know, so we talk about those, those choices, you know. Yeah, well, there's enormous amounts of transmission that's going on between them that is is utterly, you know, it's on that other it's on that other frequency that some musicians, when they play together, they have, and those guys, they have it for sure. I mean, they can move things around, change things, shift things up, change tonality and approach and everything. And they just, and a lot of times they use natural metaphors to talk about what they're doing, like, you know, snowfall or, you know, rain or wind and all of those things. They, I think they hear and, and play the music metaphorically a lot of the times in ways that I find very, very unique mm-hmm. and interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can feel that. Too, when Jim knows the words and no, you know, even each word, but you know the we're talking about, and I can feel it when every time we're playing it. After we talk about, feels different to me. I'm looking forward to the next 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 record <laughs> to doing more recording. Well, uh, give me a breath. <laughs> no, what I want to say is that we uh, <laughs> say give you a break. No, you you know from mother, because we still, I still into it, you know, and I want to have seat, you know, you know, move to the next step. I mean, you know, I'm still on mother and waiting, but the same time in in the same the same moment, I've got. You know, I'm thinking about the next one, and I've got ideas, and I can't wait. You know, come together again and start the recording. Right now, what I'm working on with them is they did a stand of five shows with Jonathan Richmond here in New York at the at this place called the Kitchen. So mm-hmm. it was five nights of, which was an incredible experience to see the you know both Jonathan Richmond and Zylorus White playing for five nights, and then seeing how they change the material and how they approach the show and um so i've got live recordings from that that i'm going through right now and listening through and mixing down so that's that's the thing i'm working on for them right now you know i i really can't wait to start the next one again because i think it's already started really because we've got a lot of material to work with and at the same time new things which i really can't wait to, to, to be with Jim and Guy again, talk about it. For as long as they want to continue doing work with me, I'm always going to be available 
for whatever they want to do. It's one of the most, I kind of think like in my involvement in music or whatever, there's been a few really key kind of partnerships that I've had in my life, you know, like certainly playing with the guys in Fugazi and for me playing with Vic Chesnut um, and, and then working as a producer for these guys is definitely in that category of, of, of things where I consider them like the deepest kind of musical priority that I could have. And so for, for as long as they want to keep working, then I will always be available to do that. Certainly anytime they're in town, they'll probably come here and just track stuff at the house and just start shaping, you know, it's just, it's, it's just a way of working or way of collecting things without necessarily a full sense of where it's headed, but that's generally what happens. So I expect that will probably continue to happen. Special thanks again to Guy, Jim, and George for being on this, the 400th episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Entertainment One Podcast Network and is available on all iOS and Android platforms and also on things like YouTube and Spotify and Audio Boom as well. If you can't find an episode you're looking for, if you wish to learn more about me or sign up for my regularly scheduled newsletter, please visit vishkana.com. You can like Creative Control on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Vish Creative, or follow me at Vish Khanna. You can listen to a radio show version of Creative Control on Wednesdays at noon Eastern Standard Time around the world at CFRU.ca or on an actual radio at 93.3 FM if you're in or near Guelph. Also, please visit Patreon.com slash Creative Control to make a flexible monthly donation to keep this podcast going. Thanks to everyone who's been pledging to the show. It means the world. And uh, again... If I can send you something for your pledge, perhaps a, a Creative Control t-shirt or something else, let me know. Maybe we can figure something out. Send me a message at Patreon once you pledge, and we'll go from there. I'd like to thank again uh, all the people who offer in-kind support of the show, Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, Planet of Sound in Toronto, and Ottawa for sponsoring the show. Thanks to Jim Guthrie for letting me use the instrumental version of The Rest is Yet to Come to end this show each and every week. Uh, thanks to Annalisa at... Uh, at uh, E1 Entertainment One Podcast Network. Thanks to the whole uh, crew at CFRU for supporting me and the show, and uh, thanks to you for listening to it and telling people about it, uh, telling people about it, giving it a nice uh, review rating, downloading episodes, all that stuff is very helpful. So thank you. And uh, 400, we hit 400. More to come. Here's to 400 more. I that seems ambitious, but we'll we'll keep going. We're just going to keep going. Thank you so much. I will talk to you soon. Goodbye for now.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.